When you are following what God has already told you to do, He will give you further guidance when you need it. So obey what you know. God will give you what you need as you go. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you would open your Bibles to Acts 16, Acts 16. We're opening a series in the book of Philippians, and the letter of Paul was written by Paul to the church of Philippi around A.D. 61. Today we're going to look at the context of this letter from the founding of the church. So the circumstances that led to the founding of the church of Philippi are recorded in Acts 16, uh, written by Luke, Paul's traveling companion and personal physician. Uh, Paul needed a personal physician. He was beaten on a number of occasions, and uh, Luke was there for lots of reasons, among other things, to patch him up. So we're going to look at a map of, uh, Rob's going to keep it on screen for some time, so you can get a geographical context as well as a historical context of what was going on in the world at large at the time of the um, founding of the Church of Philippi. Contextually, Paul and Barnabas have finished their first missionary journey, and they returned to their sending church in Antioch, which is a couple hundred miles north of Jerusalem in Syria, on the eastern edge of the Mediterranean. They then traveled south to Jerusalem for the Jerusalem Council, which is recorded in Acts 15. The purpose of the council was to meet and determine if Gentile believers could be accepted on an equal basis with Jewish Christians. Because all the Christians in the church at this point in time, for the most part, were still Jews. And Paul and Barnabas had finished their first missionary journey to the Gentiles. A few years earlier, about ten years earlier, Peter had had an encounter with Cornelius, a Roman centurion who was a Gentile. And so it was an open question. Some of the old line Jews said, well, they have to be circumcised in order to become a Christian. So they have to become a Jew before they become a Christian. So this council was to discuss that. Paul and Barnabas related the work of the Holy Spirit, who was converting Gentiles to faith in Jesus Christ, and the council wound up affirming that salvation by faith alone, in Christ alone, without any additional requirements, which of course is the biblical position we hold today. Paul and Barnabas then returned north from Jerusalem to Antioch, and Paul suggested that they revisit some of the churches they had planted on their first missionary journey. Now, Barnabas wanted to take his nephew, his cousin rather, John Mark. Paul did not want to take John Mark because John Mark had had really deserted them earlier on their first journey, gone back home to Mama, and Paul was not too impressed with that. So Acts 15, 36 to 42, records that they got into a big contention, uh, disagreement. As a matter of fact, the contention and disagreement was so sharp that they parted company. They said, we're not going to work together anymore. Paul was unwilling to risk failure on a very uh, difficult, dangerous mission. And John Mark wanted to salvage uh, his nephew, uh, or cousin John Mark, for future ministry. And the truth of it is, both Paul and Barnabas were probably correct in their assessment. Barnabas, remember, was the son of encouragement. That was his name. He was always an encourager, looking for the good in people, trying to salvage people, trying to encourage them. And he wanted to operate that way with uh, John Mark as well. Paul was also correct in refusing to take somebody on a history with a history of unreliability on a very difficult, dangerous mission. So they parted company, but in the sovereignty of God, they now had two missionary teams instead of one, which was interesting because uh, Barnabas took John Mark and went to Cyprus, and Paul and Silas went back to, um, to the uh, Anatolian Peninsula. We do know that John Mark ultimately did succeed in ministry, and Paul did grow to appreciate and love him. This is the same John Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark, which proves that failure does not have to be final. 
Most of us look in the mirror and we see failure from time to time. And in, by the grace of God, failure does not have to be final because God only uses one kind of person, imperfect. And if you've looked in the mirror and you've seen you're perfect, I've got another mirror you should be looking at, right? It's called the Word of God. So God only uses broken, imperfect people, which means all of us are available for service. That's good news. So Barnabas takes John Mark, goes to Cyprus. Paul takes Silas, goes to Syrian Cilicia, which is modern-day Turkey, which is the bulk of what you're seeing on the screen behind you there. Now, Silas, his Roman name is Sylvanus. Sometimes in the New Testament, you'll see him listed as Sylvanus. And that's a Greek version of the name Saul, interestingly enough. Paul's name was Saul before he was converted, and Silas's Greek name is also Saul. Now, Silas was a really good choice as a ministry partner, a teammate for Paul. He was an official representative from the Jerusalem Council, so he was very well thought of at that point. He was a Roman citizen, which in that era conveyed an enormous amount of clout, which we'll talk about. He was well known to the church at Antioch. He was a tested um, uh, servant. He was a prophet. And he was also what's called an amanuensis. He was a scribe. We would call him a stenographer. He actually was a secretary. He took dictation, which implies he was very skilled in the Greek language, which was very, very good to have. Not everybody was, uh, matter of fact, most people were not literate in that area. So if you found somebody who could read and write with expertise, that was a valuable skill because Paul dictated most of his letters. He didn't write them himself. He dictated them and was written down, and some of them were written by Silas. Uh, it seems that Paul co-authored the Thessalonian epistles with Silas, and Silas was also the secretary for Peter's first epistle. So Silas was extremely valuable. So if you look at the map, uh, they go north from Antioch, inland, and they visit the city of Lystra. Lystra was the town where Paul had previously visited on his first missionary journey and had been stoned with rocks and drug out of town and left for dead. He's revisiting this city. So Paul is a man of unusual courage. You know, most of us wouldn't go back to a town where we were left for dead, but he goes back, and there he meets Timothy. And Timothy is the son of a Jewish mother and a Greek father. So this was an uh, an interreligious and racial marriage. Timothy converted to Christianity either under the tutelage of his mother Eunice or more likely under Paul's teaching on Paul's first missionary journey. Paul called Timothy my beloved son. He said, Timothy is my son in the faith. So we're, we're assuming, I think with good rationale, that Timothy had converted to Christianity under Paul's tutelage on the first missionary journey. It says he was extremely well thought of by the churches in that region, so he was a proven leader, and Paul wanted to take him along as his protege and special assistant. So let's pick up the narrative in Acts 16, beginning at verse 6. They passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And after they came to Mysia, they were trying to get in Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas, verse 9. A vision appeared to Paul in the night, and a certain man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Therefore, putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and on the day following to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony, and we were staying in this city for some time. Now, I'm going to give you the principle, and I'm going to ask Rob to put the map back up after you get the principle down, because we're going to follow that along. Here's the principle. When you are following what God has already told you, that's a precondition, He will give you further guidance when you need it. When you are following what God has already told you, He will give you further guidance when you need it. I want you to notice the very specific direction of the Holy Spirit. They were trying to bring the gospel to Galatia and Phrygia, which is the Anatolian peninsula of modern-day Turkey, but it says the Holy Spirit forbid them. We don't know how this was communicated to Paul. We don't know how God said, no, I don't want you to stop here, I want you to go on. 
Apparently, it was pretty clear to them that God did not want to stop them. We don't know what's through a vision or a dream or a word from God or simply circumstances. But if you look at the map, Mysia and Bithynia are modern-day Turkey. Mysia is the southern shore of the Marmara Sea, which is between Turkey, modern-day Turkey, and modern-day Greece. And Bithynia is south of the Black Sea. That's obviously the northern part of modern-day Turkey. So they kept going northwest until you get this port city of Troas, which is right on the Aegean Sea. It's in the extreme northwest corner of what they call Asia Minor, uh, modern-day Turkey. It's comforting to know that even great people of God, great people of faith, are not always clear or sure about what God is calling them to do. You know, we look at these people and go, well, they should always know what God wants to do. Sometimes we don't know. You're smiling, there must be something on the screen, right? I'm not going to look. Uh, I, anyway, so Paul and Timothy and Silas were not clear at that point what God wanted them to do other than he said, no, don't go here. Remember, God guides you by closing doors as well as opening doors. So God's no is not a bad thing. God's no is really simple. When God says no to your plans, it means he has a better plan than yours. Shocking. Just shocking. I'm stunned that he would have a better plan than yours, but he always does. It's comforting to know that God will guide us as we seek to do his will, but here's the key point. If you are not already doing what God told you to do, don't bother asking him for more guidance. If you're not doing what he already told you to do, why would he give you more instructions, right? So if you want further instructions, make sure you're obeying what you already know to do, what, what you already know is right, right? And, and he wrote it down in the Bible. If you're disobeying what you know to be true in Scripture, don't bother asking God for instructions. He's going to say, what did I already tell you to do? It's written down, right? Do what you're told on that. So while in Troas, on the coast, God says, here's what I want you to do. It says, he received a vision sent to him by the Holy Spirit, a man from Macedonia, which is modern-day northern Greece, was calling Paul and says, come over to Macedonia and help us. It seems that God can use whatever means he wants to direct us. If we're listening, sometimes God is talking to us and we have this habit of not listening because he's telling us what we don't want to hear. Has that ever happened to you? God says, here's what I want you to do. It's real clear. You read it in the Bible and you go, this is what I'm supposed to do. And you go, I don't, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to do it. Well, don't ask God for any further instructions. Do what he's already told you to do at that point in time. So Paul and his team want to preach the gospel in Asia. The Holy Spirit wants them to preach in Europe. Philippi was the very first church preached or planted in Europe, which is rather interesting because the gospel goes from Europe ultimately to America, and we're the beneficiaries of that. So before leaving the, the port city of Troas, they're joined by Luke, the beloved physician, who wrote the Gospel of Luke in the book of Acts, and some think that Philippi was Luke's home city. So it could have been uh, just across the way. So they sail from Troas in Turkey, 60 miles to Samothrace. And if you look at the map, you can see Samothrace is an island. It's in the middle of the Aegean. And then they sail the remaining 90 miles across the northern end of the Aegean Sea to the port city of Philippi, which is Neapolis. So Neapolis is the port. The main city of Philippi is 10 miles inland. And so they walk from Neapolis, 10 miles inland on the Ignatian Road, very famous road, to 10 miles to the, to the city of Philippi. Now, the city of Philippi began, interestingly enough, as a gold mining town. I know. Philip of Macedon, who was the father of Alexander the Great, Alexander the Great conquered most of the known world in a very short period of time. This was his dad. He saw the strategic military importance of this town, and he named it Philippi in 356 B.C., so a few centuries before Christ. This city is so key because it's a gateway location between Europe and Asia. And if you just go a little further north than that, uh, they don't have it obviously on this map, you'll run to the current location of Istanbul, Constantinople, and it is also a port city between Europe and Asia. This was a really key strategic location. If the gospel was planted at Philippi, it could migrate. Asia as well as Europe. So God is clearly strategic in his planning. 
couple hundred years later, in 168 BC, Philippi became a Roman possession because Rome conquered Greece. Very interesting. Philippi is probably best known historically for a major battle that took place there between October 3rd and 23rd, 20 days, in 42 BC. The Battle of Philippi occurred. Cassius and Brutus, two Roman generals, they had assassinated Julius Caesar two years early in 44 BC. And they fought Mark Antony and Octavian for control of the Roman government in this battle. It was a, about a 20-day battle. And both Cassius and Brutus had thought they had lost when they hadn't, and they committed suicide during the battle. And Octavian ultimately became Caesar Augustus. Now, you know Caesar Augustus from Luke 2, who is the one who ordered the census when Jesus was born, just before Jesus was born. So this is Octavian, who became Caesar Augustus, the first Roman emperor of, of the empire. Now, after this battle, Philippi became a Roman colony. Now, that's a very big deal. A Roman colony is not just a name. It's a very coveted uh, scenario. It's a military outpost city, and it's very, very special privileges. It was known as Little Rome, this city was. Except for slaves, everyone in Philippi became a Roman citizen, and Rome had a very strategic plan to control their empire. They would transplant loyal citizens and retired soldiers to strategic locations around the empire. They wanted anchor cities or colonies where there was reliable people on site in strategic locations for military purposes. And in order to incentivize you to move from Rome to these cities, they would do things for you like exempt you from taxes. Would that move, motivate you to do something like that? I mean, if you get out of Roman taxes and move to this city, that'd be a pretty big deal. As a matter of fact, it was a garrison city, and many Roman soldiers made it their home after retirement. They didn't even return to Rome, so it was a pretty safe place to live. Even more than taxes... They had full political rights in Rome to elect their own government officials. And those government officials had limited authority. No taxes, limited government. Yeah, you know, I could be persuaded to move to a strategic location. Retired military, lots of armed people around, probably a pretty safe location, right? So Rome knew how to put the incentives out in front of you. So Philippi was a very strategic place, militarily, politically, educationally, and it was also pegged to the core, like every Roman city was at that point. So Paul and his companions show up here about 50 AD, about 20 years or so, a little bit less, after Christ was um, resurrected and went back to heaven. Now this city did not have many Jews. We know that's true because in order to form a synagogue in a city, you had to have 10 Jewish males, and this city did not have a synagogue, which means there wasn't very many Jews in this city. So on the Sabbath day, Paul, Timothy, Silas, and Luke go outside the city to a place of prayer, which often was by the side of the river. This was the Ganges River. It's about a, one and a half miles west of the city, so they walked about a mile and a half out of the city walls to this river, and they find a small group of women praying, no men. You know, nothing's changed. Men don't pray. You know, these get heart attacks, right? Women pray. I'm being facetious, right? Got it? All right. So they find these group of women, and they begin to share the gospel with them. Pick up the narrative in Acts 16, verse 14. And a certain woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. Now, Luke is writing this. When he says us, he's talking about Paul, Timothy, Silas, and himself. Luke is the author, of course, of this book. Here's the principle. We should pray that God will open people's hearts so they can understand and respond to the gospel. We should pray that God will open people's hearts so they can understand and respond to the gospel. Now, Lydia is a businesswoman. She's from the city of Thyatira. The city of Thyatira is famous for its purple trade, purple fabrics. Now, it, purple dye in that area, remember, 
uh, was pretty hard to come by. It wasn't chemically made. It was made out of a shellfish. The shellfish called the murex, M-U-R-E-X. That's where they got purple dye from. And it was a pretty laborious process to produce this purple dye, very expensive. So the color purple was really rare, and most often purple fabrics were worn by royalty, right? Because obviously it was pretty expensive, hard to come by, very labor intensive. So Lydia was probably in charge of the branch office of her guild, her purple dye guild. I mean, that was the guild that did that. They specialized that. And she ran the branch office of Philippi. She was a Gentile. She was probably a widow. She was a worshiper of God, but she was not a convert to Judaism. But she was a God-fearing person. She was a seeker, uh, a worshiper of Yahweh. And I want you to notice a very significant phrase. It says, the Lord opened her heart to understand and respond to the gospel. No one comes to Jesus unless they're drawn by the Holy Spirit. Jesus said in John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Later on in John 16, 8, he said, Jesus is talking and he says, and he, referring to the Holy Spirit, when he comes will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Acts 13 gives us an exposition of that, Acts 13, 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they began to rejoice and praise the word of God, and all who had been appointed for eternal life believed. Here's the reality. None of us are in this room solely because we were smart enough to respond to the gospel. None of us are that smart. None of us came to the Lord except he drew us. Unless the Holy Spirit opens our minds to understand the truth, we won't even comprehend it. And unless he calls to our will, we will not respond to it. What the Holy Spirit does, he opens our minds to understand the truth of the gospel in such a clear way that we're able to make a decision, yes or no, intelligently. And the Holy Spirit brings people's sins to mind so that we become convicted that we need a Savior. When you share the gospel with people and they look at you and go, well, I mean, it may be good for you, but I'm not a sinner. Number one, you just need to talk to their spouse, and they'll tell you. They're not a sinner. They're far worse than that, right? But the Holy Spirit is the one who shines the light of truth into our hearts and reveals to us when we sin. Jesus said the Holy Spirit's going to convict you of sin. People don't come to the Savior until they're convinced they need saving. From what? From sin. It takes the Holy Spirit to convict us of sin. Now, Despite the work of the Holy Spirit in bringing us to that point and opening our minds to understand it, everyone is still responsible to choose for themselves. God will never violate someone's will. God will never force anyone to come to him. It's an open invitation, but you still have to choose to respond to say, I need a Savior. I want a relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm going to trust him as Savior and Lord. So Lydia responds by faith to the gospel message, and apparently so did her entire household. Her children, her relatives, her servants, and they were baptized soon after their profession of faith. You know that baptism is, of course, a public declaration. It's an identification. When you get baptized, you're saying, I identify with God's people. I belong to Jesus Christ, and I belong to the people who follow Jesus Christ. Now, after she was baptized, she invited, by the way, let me put a plug in. If you haven't been baptized and you know Jesus, you're disobedient. It's a command. So if you haven't been baptized, you need to be baptized. If you belong to Jesus. If you don't belong to Jesus, don't get baptized. But if you belong to Jesus, you need to get baptized. So after the baptism, she invites these four evangelists to stay in her house, along with her family, her servants, her children, and everybody else which always struck me, I thought, she must have had a big house. I mean, you know, there's four additional people, four mouths to feed, four rooms. I mean, I don't know. She must have been a very successful businesswoman with a, a pretty successful house. And by the way, hospitality was not really an optional. It was a small thing in that day. There was no hotels. They didn't exist. You either stayed in people's homes or you stayed in the street. That was your option. So hospitality was a very, very, very important ministry. I want you to note that as soon as people decide to follow Jesus, 
Who's paying attention? Satan is paying attention. And he begins to oppose God's work because the very next verse says in verse 16, it happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, which means it was a habitual going to the place of prayer, a certain slave girl having a spirit of divination met us who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. She continued doing this for many days, but Paul was greatly annoyed and turned to her and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very moment. So this girl's demon-possessed. She's controlled by an evil spirit, a fallen angel from Satan. And as always, anytime demons are in Scripture, we see that they know exactly who Jesus is. They know exactly who Jesus is. And they know exactly who Paul is. Paul and his companions had come to proclaim the way of salvation, and this demon calls it out, which is utterly fascinating to me, calls it out publicly. Because I never quite understood, why would Satan use a demon to proclaim the way of salvation? Which is interesting. I still am not quite clear on what the M.O. was there, but demons do possess, obviously, supernatural powers, and apparently people were willing to pay large sums of money to have this girl prophesy their future prospects. Here's what's going to happen in your life. I don't know whether it was accurate or whether it was hocus-pocus. It was a very superstitious culture, very superstitious pagan culture back then, and she probably provided entertainment for the citizens of that era, but it was extremely profitable. She was demon-possessed, she had a, had a gift or a skill, she was in bondage, and her owners, who, who obviously were exploiting her gift for a great deal of profit. Paul's motivation is pretty clear. He didn't want the gospel to be proclaimed by demons. And so he commanded the demon in the name of Jesus to come out of her. And of course the demon did, which is interesting. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There is no power in heaven or hell that is not subject to the name of Jesus Christ. Anywhere. He is Lord of all. So in the name of Jesus, this demon came out, and she was set free from bondage. So it's a great day for her. She's set free from demonic bondage, but it's a really bad day for her owners because their income stream has just disappeared. I mean, they were getting rich, and now they're... Revenue is dried up because she has no more gifts because she's set free from bondage. And instead of rejoicing at her being set free, they are hot. Verse 19. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, These men are throwing our city into confusion being Jews and are proclaiming customs which is not lawful for us to observe being Romans. So they grab them, they drag them through the city streets to the local city officials. They had a problem, though. Loss of business income is not a chargeable crime. My income stream went down, I'm going to sue somebody. Now, that's what we do here. They couldn't do it back then. So they disguised their charges. They accused the, them as being Jews of being anti-Roman. Right? They said they're upsetting our city. They're proclaiming customs the Roman considered unlawful. Well, there's some truth to that. See, in the Roman era, everyone was permitted to have your own religion. You could believe whatever you wanted as long as you gave a hat tip to the emperor as, as God, but it was illegal to try and convert any Roman citizen to another religion, which Paul and Silas were certainly doing. Now, it didn't help that the emperor Claudius had recently ordered the expulsion of all the Jews out of Rome. There was a number of disturbances, and he threw all the Jews out of Rome in one weekend, so to speak. And so anti-Semitism was extremely strong in the empire at that point in time. Jews were hated, despised, and viewed with suspicions. So these slave owners played on the racism uh, and religious prejudice of the crowd. And the crowd turned into a violent mob, obviously, and the magistrates capitulated. So there's no due process of law. There's no discovery or presentation of evidence. There's no opportunity for self-defense. Verse 22, it says, The crowd rose up together against them. This is a mob. 
And the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. In our, in our world today, we would say these two were railroaded. I mean, they, were, they didn't have a trial. They didn't have any discovery. They didn't have an opportunity for self-defense. They were severely beaten with rods, um, which could break bones, certainly would give you a lot of blood clots and uh, break skin and all sorts of things. And they were thrown to the maximum security um, section of the jail, the deepest part of the prison. We'd call it the hole. Prisons in that era were often made out of stone for security reasons, lots of stone. And so they were dark, dank, cold. Uh, they were forbidding places. Uh, probably the worst part of them was the dungeon, uh, which was usually just a hole in the floor. And beyond this, their feet were placed into stocks. Now, I don't know if you've seen stocks. What they do is they put your feet out, and they have two big planks, which they cut holes in. They stick your feet in, and they put the, and they put the two pieces together, bolt them together so you can't move. And um, it got even worse than that. Sometimes they'd bend you over in places and stretch your body and uh, pretty painful stuff. So this Roman jailer's taking no chances. He's throwing them into the worst part of the prison, locking them up. And it says that only Paul and Silas were in prison. Luke wasn't in prison, neither was Timothy. Now, we think that Timothy had a Greek father, so he got off. He wasn't a Jew, and Luke was 100% Gentile. So they weren't thrown in prison at all, just Paul and Silas, because they were Jews. Verse 25. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. Verse 27, And when the jailer had been roused out of sleep and had seen the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do you not harm yourself, for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Here's the principle. Prayer and praise to God, even when in pain, is a powerful testimony to those who don't know Jesus. Prayer and praise to God, even when in pain, is a powerful testimony to those who don't know Jesus. That is supernatural. Do you know what we do when we're in pain? What's our natural response? It's to whine and complain and bellyache and blame God and thumb suck. Poor little old me, you know, P-L-O-M, the dread disease of plum. That's normal. That's what the world does. When Christians don't behave like that, it knocks their socks off. It's unusual for that to happen. So Paul and Silas are praying and praising in the middle of pain. What they're actually learning to do is what we are called to learn to do, which is we are learned to be content and rejoice in whatever circumstances I am. These are not fun circumstances. These are painful circumstances. They're bleeding. They're obviously bruised up pretty badly. And they're praying and singing hymns to praise of God. Now, they're not praising because they're happy because of their circumstances. Their circumstances are a mess. They're in great pain. They're joyful because they're counted worthy to suffer for Jesus, number one. And number two, they're joyful because Jesus is with them in prison. Now, singing when you're suffering is so unusual that Luke notes that the prisoners are listening, which is highly unusual because they're locked up right with them in these cells at that point in time. It demonstrates the supernatural power of God. And I don't know what they prayed about. I mean, I probably would have been calling lightning strikes down on the magistrates or something, you know. I don't know whether they're praying for the salvation of their captors. I don't know if they prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's what Jesus prayed on the cross. I don't know whether they were praying for their fellow inmates, but it was powerful testimony because their fellow inmates, many of some of which were obviously on death row, which I'll talk about in a second, were listening to them behaving in supernatural ways. 
And when we as Christians can live above our circumstances because of the reality of Jesus Christ in our life, and we understand that he has a plan for everything, including our suffering, which we talked about the last two months in Job, that is powerful testimony. So when you encounter things in your life, it's not saying go into denial about it. It's acknowledging that, yes, it's painful. Yes, it's bad. Yes, it is very hurtful, the situation I'm in. But God has a plan in the middle of that. God will give me what I need in the middle of my pain and my struggle and my suffering. And God did have a plan. And that plan involved an earthquake. Now, I don't think anybody saw this one coming, right? Apparently, it was strong enough to snap every chain and open every gate and unlock every prison door. Now, if you're deep in the hole and you're surrounded by big blocks of rock making up walls and things start shaking, what is your conclusion? I am going to die. Right? You're going to be crushed. I mean, that's pretty obvious at that point. So here's the dilemma. Roman jailers were responsible for any prisoners that escaped. And if a prisoner escaped, the jailer received the same sentence that the prisoner had already been sentenced with. So if someone was due 10 years in prison, a prisoner escaped, the jailer went to prison for 10 years. If the prisoner was committed a capital crime, they executed the jailer because that capital crime prisoner had escaped. Now you understand why there must have been murderers in this prison because the jailer saw the open doors and... and broken chains. He assumed that all the prisoners escaped, and what did he do? He took a sword. He was going to kill himself. Why? Because he was going to undergo execution by the Romans if he lost any prisoner, and he thought all of them escaped. Paul, of course, filled with the Spirit, calls with a loud voice, says, no one's escaped. Now that's, I mean, when you listen to that, you go, that's, this is pretty miraculous. These are not your neighbors. Well, maybe you live next to people like this, but probably not. These are bad people, and they're all in one place. Now, they'd seen Paul and Silas pray, heard them pray, and the earthquake came following the prayers. What would you conclude? The God of Paul and Silas is not a wimp. He can shake the earth. I think they were stunned, and they froze. They stayed put. At any rate, the jailer is so moved that he comes to their maximum security prison cell, falls down before him, and he asks the single most important question that can be asked. What must I do to be saved? There is no more important question. Now, you won't hear that from the world because the world thinks that this is all there is. But on their deathbed, believe me, people are going to be thinking about that. And you say, well, what led the jailer to ask the question? I want you to think about the context. He had almost certainly heard this slave girl shout for weeks that Paul and Silas were servants of the Most High God who had come to proclaim the way of salvation. He would almost certainly heard about her, obviously, deliverance and set free by Paul's God. He almost certainly heard Paul and Silas' story from magistrates. He'd almost certainly heard them praying and praising God. He had just survived an earthquake, and Paul had just saved him from committing suicide. You think he was ready to hear about being saved? I think so. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved, you and your household, verse 31. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all those who were in his household. And he took them that very hour of the night, washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he, the jailer, brought them into his house, set food before them, and rejoiced greatly having believed in God with this whole household. Here's the principle. Salvation comes by faith alone in Christ alone and always brings joy and genuine change in a person's life. Salvation comes by faith alone in Christ alone and always brings joy and genuine change in a person's life. He says, what must I do to be saved? And they said, only one thing, believe. The only thing required to be right with God is belief. You're not going to earn it through works, for by grace you are saved. We know that. There's no works performed in order to be right with God, have your sins forgiven. The only act that required is believing. Trusting by faith that Jesus Christ died in your place and paid the penalty of your sin, 
And it says the jailer's entire household listened to this gospel message, and they responded by faith as well. We know that they responded because of his changed behavior. You've you got to look at this jailer. This was a pretty hardened guy. He'd probably seen a lot of really bad people in his prison. And for those of our friends in this class that work in corrections, people that are in jail are not there for good deeds. Just saying. Yes? Okay? So this jailer, his heart is softened, broken, comes to Christ, he washes their wounds, he's baptized, brings them into his own home and feeds them supper. Now, there's a lot of inmates in prison I probably wouldn't do that for. Just saying. But the gospel brings joy. The gospel always brings joy. And it always brings genuine change. And this jailer's heart has obviously been changed by the gospel. Verse 35. Now when day came, the chief magistrates, the judges of the city, sent their policemen saying, release those men. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, the chief magistrates have sent to release you. Now therefore come out and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us in public without trial, men who are Romans, and have thrown us into prison, and now they are sending us away secretly? No, indeed. But let them come themselves and bring us out. And the policemen reported these words to the chief magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. And they came and appealed to them, and when they had brought them out, they were begging them to leave the city. And they went out of the prison, entered the house of Lydia, and when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. Here's the principle. God's work often progresses through opposition and difficulties. God's work often progresses through opposition and difficulties. Now, we're really not sure what led the magistrates to change their minds about releasing Paul and Silas. It says, when the day came, they said, release these men. I don't know whether they, you know, if they had the earthquake, that might have led them to believe that maybe they had done something wrong. These were pretty superstitious people. Maybe a good night's sleep gave them a little perspective. You ever gone to bed with one point of view and woken up with another? Sometimes I know it doesn't help. Sometimes you wake up and it's worse than it was the night before. But uh, Marin and I have a rule. No major decisions made after 9 p.m. It's real simple. Nothing up here works for me after 9 p.m. I'm not saying it works before then. It just doesn't work at all. <laughs> after 9, there is cornmeal mush. I mean, that's it. Cold cornmeal mush. I mean, it's just it's worth it. So no major decisions after 9 p.m. I think some of you might need to think about that. Matter of fact, some of us might be better off saying there's really only a couple of good hours of the day. You know, maybe after the shower and caffeine, a couple of cups, maybe three, that would be the time to make decisions. After 12 noon, it's nap time. I mean, you know, it's not working. I don't know. Just a thought. So these magistrates wake up with a different point of view, and they want Paul and Silas to disappear. I mean, they want them to go away. And Paul is having none of it. He tells the policemen, you tell those characters they have violated Roman law. First of all, they were beaten in public without a trial. That was clearly a violation of Roman law. They did not get any due process at all. A mob had contributed to this beating, which would be very, very uh, negative on the magistrate's rule of the city if he got back to Rome, because Rome hated disturbances. If Rome liked one thing, it was law and order, no violence, or they used violence, but no, no rioting, no out of control, just keep the peace, right? Furthermore, it was patently and completely against the law for a Roman citizen to be beaten. Paul was a Roman citizen and beaten five times. Right? Against the law every time. So he demanded these city leaders come down publicly and escort them out of town in front of God and everybody, which they did. Matter of fact, they begged them to leave town. I mean, they wanted this problem to go away. You know? So you look at me and say, well, how come Paul demanded this? It sounds like he was vindictive. You know, he wanted to get his pound of flesh. Actually, that's not true. 
He was protecting this church from future persecution by doing this. See, he already knew there was a lot of anti-Semitism in this town. He knew there was a lot of religious persecution against the Jews and therefore against the Christians, and he knew that was prevalent, but he wanted to protect this small church from future harassment. So he demanded public acknowledgement of wrongdoing in front of the citizens. So the leaders had to come down and eat humble pie and, and basically say, we were wrong to do what we did. We violated Roman law in persecuting these people. We didn't have a cause for that so that the citizens of Philippi would be less likely to persecute the church in the future. So he really bought a lot of protection for this small church by doing that. You have rights under the law of the land you're in. And it is not an act of... of, of uh, it, you can exercise those rights and still be a person of faith. Don't ever be afraid of doing that. So Paul went to Lydia's house, encouraged them, and left. I want you to notice some things. God seldom operates according to our expectations. God can save anyone, anywhere, anytime, under any circumstances. When Paul came to Philippi, I don't think he had any clue that God had a jailer he wanted to save. You may have people on your list that are going, God could never save this schmuck. There's no way, shape, or form that they could ever be saved. God can save anybody. He saved you. And you were once a schmuck. Think about the characters in this drama. Lydia is a very successful, God-fearing businesswoman and her household have come to faith. Yeah, you could say, I would believe that. A hardened Roman jailer and his entire family have also decided to follow Jesus. A little hard to believe. An earthquake can change anybody's mind. It's very likely that some, if not many, of the prisoners in the prison also decided to follow Jesus at that point, but it's not stated. I think it's very plausible, though. It is also highly likely, I think, that the formerly demon-possessed slave girl did choose to follow Jesus. In Jesus' ministry, when he cast people, demons out, they followed him at that point in time. I want you to notice, this is the genesis of this church. You have a jailer. A Gentile businesswoman, a formerly demon-possessed slave girl, and a bunch of felons. That's the church when he leaves at Philippi. They have absolutely nothing in common except Jesus. Now, we look at a church and we say, well, a church is uniform. Everybody looks alike, acts alike, comes from the same socioeconomic background. We all share the same political viewpoints. Baloney. That is not what keeps us one. It's Jesus that keeps us one. We are not uniform. We are unified. The glue that holds the church together is nothing less than the common bond of Jesus Christ. So don't go trying to make people agree with your political viewpoints. That's not relevant to the church. People that strongly disagree with your political viewpoints are going to go to heaven. And they might be surprised to see you there. Right? Just saying, stay focused on Jesus. All the rest of this stuff that divides us, it ain't going to heaven. It means nothing in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the only thing that can unify very different people into one family, then and now. Jesus calls us brothers and sisters. Regardless of our differences, he tells us to love one another regardless. So the church at Philippi is born in peace, but it grows in opposition. Lydia was open to hear the gospel. Satan had positioned his demon to stir up opposition. I don't think Satan counted on Paul exercising the demon. Furthermore, he didn't count on Paul and Silas rejoicing even in the middle of suffering. Satan certainly didn't count on God sending an earthquake to open doors for the gospel. And by the way, the earthquake had nothing to do with getting Paul and Silas out of prison. God didn't send the earthquake to get Paul and Silas out of prison. God sent the earthquake to get the jailer into the kingdom of God. That's the point. So sometimes when you're in prison, metaphorically, and you go, it's not fair. It ain't about you. It may be about your children who need to watch you suffering for the gospel with joy in the middle of nasty circumstances to convince them that maybe they shouldn't be so dead and so centered. 
It's not about us all the time. As a matter of fact, it's seldomest. Paul and Silas were rejoicing in prison, and as a result, the jailer comes to Christ. The testimony that the God of Paul and Silas is the God who controls all things. We should not fear opposition to the gospel. That's when the church grows many, 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 many times. And we in the American church have had the culture with us for generations. That is changing. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. The church always has done best when it's countercultural. Always. That's when it grows. We get lazy when the culture is with us. We also get corrupted by the culture. So some people come to faith when they see the power of God overcome obstacles and opposition. That's why it's not necessarily a bad thing. Our job is to proclaim the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit and what? Leave the results to God. Keep praying for your lost friends, family, relatives. Pray for the leaders of this nation of all political persuasions, all political parties. Dear Lord, they need wisdom. And they do in Europe. And they do in Asia. And they do everywhere. It's a tough job governing a bunch of sinners. Pray for them. Okay. Let's review and then we'll do prayer and praise. Number one. When you are following what God has already told you to do, He will give you further guidance when you need it. So obey what you know. God will give you what you need as you go. God doesn't steer parked cars. You have to be kind of obeying what you know, moving. Then when He turns the wheel, you actually go someplace. Number two, we should pray that God will open people's hearts so they can understand and respond to the gospel. Pray to the Lord for them before you open your mouth to them. Number three, prayer and praise to God, even when in pain, is a powerful testimony to those who don't know Jesus. Job is a good model, especially toward the end. Number four, salvation comes by faith alone in Christ alone and always brings joy and genuine change to a personal life. It is simply choosing by faith to trust in Jesus Christ as payment for your sins. And lastly, God's work often progresses through opposition and difficulties. We're going to see more opposition and difficulties. Get ready for it. This culture has lost its mind. Spiritually, this should not surprise us. When you turn your back on God, you get stupid. Literally, you get spiritually foolish, Romans 1. You have a phenomenal testimony to bring to lost people who are hurting. They may not look like it. They may think they're large and in charge, but deep down they need the gospel of Jesus Christ. They need to know that their eternal security is bought and paid for by Jesus. Okay. Love you guys. Lord willing, next week we'll get into Philippians chapter 1, so please pick that up and start reading. Now that you know, Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today, and now that you know, do.